Hey guys, I'm Stephanie Wallace, and this is Independence Radio, a broadcast of Independence Care System. Independence Radio is a series of conversations with members of the ICS community about issues of health care and independent living for people with disabilities and older adults. My guests today are Mitch Tepper and Danielle Shapuk, both experts in the sexuality of people with spinal cord injuries. Drs. Tepper and Shapuk will be featured speakers at From Injury to Intimacy, a conference for consumers at Mount Sinai Hospital on May 12th. For more information about the conference, stay tuned. In the meantime, enjoy the conversation. I'd just like to start off asking, first of all, what do we call you? Do we call you a sexpert, a sexologist, uh, what? Well, I like to say first and foremost, I'm a psychologist. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. So okay. that's a, no, no, no apologies. I, I, um, that's my training and that's how it all began at the new school where I got my PhD. And from there, I just kind of evolved and developed, uh, certain areas that I like to work in and feel like I have a lot of experience in now. So uh, but in the media, I've been called a sexpert a lot, oh. and I, I don't fight it. Okay. And Dr. Tepper, you? I actually am a sexologist, uh, which means I have a Ph.D. in human sexuality education. So I have a educational foundation and a research foundation, and I'm also ASECT, which is the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, certified as an educator and a sexuality counselor. So those are the... The, the, the roles and, and credentials I have, and I actually work as a sex coach uh, using more of an educational coaching model than a, than a, than a counseling model. Okay, uh, before, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. And could, could you tell me the nature of your, dis- your disabilities first, Dr. Tepper? Sure. I have a spinal cord injury, um, the C6, C7 incomplete, going on about 35 years now. Oh, wow. And, and you, Dr. I was born with my disability. It's called spinal muscular atrophy. Type 2 I have. Um, So it's congenital. And I was diagnosed when maybe around the age of three. And I had my first motorized wheelchair in kindergarten. Really? Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. And how how does this, uh, how does your disability affect your sexuality? That's an excellent question. That's the question of all questions. So, and I feel like that's a question that still remains largely unaddressed Mm -hmm. because we talk about different areas of disability, but when it comes to sex and dating, there's not a lot of conversation out there. And that's sad because my disability profoundly affects my dating life and my sexuality. And not in terms of my, uh, how do I want to put it? Um, it's kind of like cyclical, like a circle. So I grew up with family and friends not really talking about dating and sexuality. Um, this, the covert message to me was, that's not for you. Like, no one's really going to find you sexual because of your wheelchair or if someone does it's going to take someone really really special so that's disheartening and disappointing and depressing frankly so that coupled with our reflection in the media where I never saw myself in any magazines or on any television shows and you know, all through high school and college, I was reading Vogue and In Style and Glamour and thinking in my head, um, well, I I like to dress my body too, and I like to wear makeup, and I feel sexual. I have crushes. I want to date boys. So why not me? Why am I exempt? I'm going to put a pin in that for a minute, and I'm going to ask Dr. Tepper, um, you said 35 years ago you had an, an accident, so that must have affected you when you were very young, like right in the prime. Of... Yes, I was 20 years old and working as a lifeguard at the time uh, when I dove into the water and sustained my injuries. 
And so how how did that affect you? I imagine a young man, 20 years old, probably in the prime of his sexuality, confident. How did that affect you? How Did, did it set you back? Of, of, of course. Um, I'm 55 now, so I would say I'm in my prime now. Oh, okay. So just, just, just to correct you. Um, but yeah, I was in, at 20, you're really just developing your sexuality. And you know why Danielle was reading um, Vogue and, and the other magazines, uh, I was weaned on, on Playboy and other, <laughs> other types of adult men's magazines from a, a, a very early age. You know, it was kind of regular, you know, magazines around, the, around you know, my grandparents' house, uncle's house, whatever. And so I was, I was a very sexual person as in very interested in sexuality. I didn't have a lot of sexual experience as far as, you know, nowadays everyone thinks of sex as, as intercourse. Um, but I, I had very limited, only one uh, experience with one, you know, girlfriend before uh, my injury. I was sexually active in other ways, and this was, you know, in the late 70s, 80s. So, you know, I, w- I was into other other types of sex and expression. So when I was injured, the first question I asked, which is the first question a lot of people who get injured who don't have children yet is, will I ever be able to have children? And I, w- I was in the ICU. I was, you know, they just took my, not the ventilator, but whatever was helping me breathe uh, out. And so it was the first question I could ask. I was still in uh, traction, you know, with weights off my head and in a striker frame. I'm sure some of the people know what a striker frame is. And, and I asked my doctor, will I ever be able to have children? And he says, and this was, you know, 1982. And he says, you know, chances are less than 10% you'll ever be able to have a child. And that's all he said. He didn't say... Uh, but don't worry, you can adopt, or don't worry, you know, you'll still be able to meet a partner. That that was it, you know, quick answer. And that was it for the first few months in rehab. Um, so I, I was curious from the beginning. I, I didn't understand, you know, for me, uh, with a spinal cord injury, some men still get erections. We call them reflex erections. And I couldn't understand, you know, why I had one all the time, you know, because I had a, this indwelling catheter, something to empty my bladder, which was stimulating me. And I didn't know if it still worked. Um, I couldn't quite feel it. And I just sensed it. So, and it was embarrassing because, you know, one of the nurses said, your flagpole is up. And I wasn't really interested in wow. hearing that from her. Uh, and so... You know, I couldn't really use my arms or my hands well to, to stimulate. I tried to get a private duty nurse to help me, uh, but she, she was a little concerned about that. We, we were getting along well, but, but she wasn't willing to kind of breach that, you right. know, boundary. So I was left on my own uh, to figure things out, and, and that I did. I, I probably took it to a different level that I ended up with a, a Ph.D. in what and, and is is that is that is your own situation what what got you interested in this uh, this field this line of work? Absolutely, I was working on a degree and I graduated in a degree because it was in my junior year of college. So I've got a degree in business administration with a focus on finance and went out and worked in in banking for a short time. Uh, but then I gravitated uh, over to public health. And after getting a master's in public health and doing a national survey of the first 500 people uh, who were um, tagged as spinal cord injured at the National Spinal Cord Injury Association at the time, now United Spinal, on sex education and counseling, and only 50% of the people, and I had nearly a 70% response rate, received any kind of sexuality education mm-hmm. or counseling, which you know, all the people were affected uh, in, in profound ways sexually. And then... For the 50% who got something, the half of those said it didn't meet their needs. So that's what I did as a master's um, thesis, and that inspired me. People's responses, not only to answering the um, multiple choice, true, false, you know, um, quantitative questions, but they wrote in qualitative answers, and they sent me cards, and they had a lot of lot of questions, and I said, this is what I should be doing. I was heading towards managing, I wanted to be the president or CEO of a rehab hospital when I went to Yale for my for my degree in uh, public health and hospital administration. But that study and the response to it motivated me, saying this is what I should be doing. This is my special purpose. Uh, and so that I went on to get a PhD at University of Pennsylvania. What about you, Dr. Shapok? What 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 led you to this line of work? 
there's been several different steps that led me to where I am right now. And that's the first one I've already, I, I talked about a little bit, and that's the discrepancy that I was always aware of as I was growing up, especially in adolescence and in college. And then when I came to New York to go to grad school, the discrepancy became even more delineated, I guess, because I that was the first time I really started dating and I put my profile up on Match.com. And I noticed how friends who were, you know, quote, of equal caliber were without a visible disability were getting much more dates. And at that time, I was heavily into Sex and the City, and I thought, uh, just I, I thought, where's my Carrie Bradshaw to ask about this? Like, wh- where do I go to to ask about dating and and this topic? That motivated me to start writing on the issue, and I wanted to infuse pop culture, again inspired by the TV show. So I wanted to have talk about the real message bring my PhD into play, and also infuse it with pop culture. That's when my friend called me one night and said, I found something on the internet for you. It's perfect. So it was the Miss Wheelchair New York pageant, and it mentioned academic achievement and glamorousness. And that was actually the first time I heard glamour paired with disability, Mm. the two words. So I thought... Let me go in, let me enter as a contestant, let me win it, and then let me use that to open the door to start talking very publicly about the issue. Because our society responds well to pop culture. So that's what I did, and I hired a publicist to help me, and I used it as leverage so people could really hear the message. Not only that people with disabilities are sexual, but that we're also sexy and glamorous and cool because up until now I, I've seen some change but it's still not cool to have a disability and I don't see why it can't be and then finally my after I graduated I wanted to open my own therapy practice and I thought that I would open it over Skype to make it easier for people with disabilities to come to therapy so the intent was to address issues of dating and sexuality that that they may encounter, but also to address, I call it uh, dateable self-esteem. So I like to differentiate it between regular, just the general concept of self-esteem, because people with disabilities are often happy with a lot of aspects of their life, but when it comes to dating, our self-esteem is really in the gutter. One, one, one of the things that I find, I, I, I became disabled in 2009, and um, I found, one, your medical needs are taken care of, you know, you get your the, the things that you need, but that part of your life, there was nowhere for, well, I find that there was nowhere for me to turn. There was nowhere, yes. no one for me to talk. Who do I talk to about this big change in my life? Or is it just over? You know, for a while I felt like it's just over. And it's such an important thing to deal with in terms of self-esteem because sometimes we run into situations where we accept less than we deserve because we feel lucky to have someone who may just be uh, curious not necessarily interested. And so we um, we accept a lot less sometimes because that of that self-esteem. You may still be pretty or beautiful or, or whatever it is. You're a beautiful woman. But it's something about this wheelchair or the crutches or whatever it is that makes the world look at us like patients. Because unfortunately, the stigmas and stereotypes are still so powerful. I mean, I bet if we went out there and asked a group, you know, out there in downtown Brooklyn and asked a group of able-bodied men if what some of their opinions were, we would still be thought of as the word asexual would probably still come up or or 
wondering if we're able to have sex. And those yeah, are that's... big time players when it comes to uh, finding a mate. For some reason, those are big time players, which I argue that there are many other factors that come into play. And also, there's many ways to have sex, as Dr. Tepper will agree, and other and ways to look look at it. Now, how, when it, you both, because you both mentioned the other ways to have sex, how do you get that message across to someone who has a disability, and you know certain parts of their bodies are not, you know usable the way they used to be. I don't know. Did I say that right? That sounds so crude. <laughs> but you, you understand what I'm saying. Who have to find alternative ways? How do you get that message across? Because I don't think people, you know, like once it's, you feel like once I can't do it the way that I'm used to seeing it being done, it can't be done. Mm-hmm. How do you get right. that message across? So, you know, I want to back up to your initial question. It's like, you know, where do I go? Who do I ask? You know, I wonder like where you did your, where do you did your rehabilitation? You know, because I would hope, but maybe it's not true because my study was in like 1990, where less than half of people got anything and half didn't, who got didn't meet their needs, um, and we're you know 25 plus years, and uh, it sounds like things haven't gotten any better because I've been advocating providing comprehensive sexual health care and rehabilitation. For all that time, I developed a curriculum back in the early 90s and have trained hundreds and hundreds of health professionals, but still, you know, the trickle down uh, from health professional to patient doesn't seem to be working. So if you can't go to your doctor or someone on your rehab team, uh, you know, I know I just did just last year an updated brochure for United Spinal. I've done webinars for them, so I'd encourage people to go to the sexuality area of the resources on United Spinal. They could watch a recent webinar in February by someone else on sex toys, and they could watch one on me on regaining that feeling. So that initial experience, because my research was on men and women with spinal cord injuries, and it was around pleasure and orgasm, and I asked everybody whether they had orgasm or not to tell me about their sexuality after their injury, and they said it's not the same, it's not normal. So that is like somewhat universal, even beyond spinal cord injury. I work with a lot of injured vets, so it's after you step on the landmine, you know, after you get burned, it's not the same, it's not normal. And then often people's first experiences with uh, masturbation, and that is very disappointing, even if, you know, if you have absolutely no sensation or no feeling, right? So that's a, a huge loss, and then they come to the conclusion it's pointless, you know, why bother? Or if they have sensation and it doesn't escalate for arousal, where they don't experience orgasm or ejaculation, they say it's pointless, why bother? And people get stuck there if they don't have help. And often their lived experience, their their experience after masturbation, sometimes with a partner uh, who avoided having sex with them, who cheated on them, and, and you know, wasn't a good experience. And so leaving people, once again, thinking their sex life is over. I really believe a lot, why I mentioned United Spinal, in in reaching out to other people with injuries or disabilities for support. There is a lot out there on the Internet now. Um, On my site at drmitchelltepper.com, I have uh, like six videos called Sex and Paralysis video series. So it demonstrates sexual positions for men and women. Granted, the woman is uh, paraplegic, so she has use of her upper body. And there's been a call for people with higher level injuries to be represented, and I'm glad to do that if I have somebody to model. Uh, And so we have one for men and one for women. And we have also other things to go towards expanding your your relearning, you know, how to experience pleasure. And so I have something on on Tantra, which is, you know, a, a way of I, I call it mindfulness and the yoga of sex. So it's taking mindfulness techniques. You, you know, mindfulness and tantra come from the same source, and it's taking that and some of the to- techniques from you learn in yoga, and you can take adaptive yoga for breathing and centering your body and putting them with an intention, a more sexual erotic intention. Intention is very important, and attention, in order to this to work, and, and then the other one was on... On, on sensate focus, on touch, and learning to touch again. I, so I, the combination of 
being mindful and you know exploring all areas that you do have sensation is important but you know we have to work through those myths that it's pointless why bother so we need positive you know education about what's really your potential so I, I believe education is important and I think role models are important and then instruction skill building right. I came to um, a, a seminar uh, you did a seminar uh, maybe it was not last year the year before 2015 I believe and yeah. we and we we did that the touch and I was so impressed with that uh, and and being in the moment and and that the touch part though was really I was very impressed with that <laughs> you know because it it does give people an, another alternative to get your head out of what you're used to seeing and what you if you cuz your life is different now yeah. You know, especially if you came into your it, it, into your disability, your life is different now. And so you really have to change your thinking. On that note, and you mentioned when you were, after you sustained your disability, you mentioned self-esteem. I find that in my therapy practice, it's so complex. So it's about sometimes it is about orgasm and it's about getting an erection or and masturbating but all the issues around that and dating and that involve dating and sex it's so deep and they go from everything from privacy like how do you go about being intimate with someone when you have a home attendant right or what if you have a family that hovers oh, yes. and doesn't give you time and then we or can just even your special set of circumstances that you may have now that are not romantic to explain to somebody. Right, and even take it back a notch. How do you even meet someone in the first place? My patients will come to me. So it's so some have never had any dating experience. So I find a difference in my clients between congenital disabilities, being born with it, and a, sustaining a spinal cord injury because Someone with a congenital disability like myself, we've never even had the notion. Had nothing to compare it to. Yes, we've never had the notion of ourselves as sexual. So then you're building dateable self-esteem from the very bottom up. And then it goes to things, there's a lot of questions around when to reveal your disability if you're online dating. Mm -hmm. Do you put it in your profile or do you wait? Or what happens when, when it does become intimate and you wear depends? depends right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was, like, how do that I? My, that was my, for a long time, because I, I, I wondered, when do you disclose certain information? And I, I, this, I was doing an online, uh, online dating thing and I met a guy and we talked and then we hit it off wonderfully. And I was like, okay, so when do you say something? When do you? He knew I had a disability, but I think for some people that think, okay, she's in a wheelchair and she's just sitting down, you know, well, she'll just get up and everything will be regular when it's time, you know. Mm. And it's like, I was like, okay, listen, before I get in too deep, I'm just going to let them know everything. And I went down this laundry list of things, it's like, Threw it at him like there, boom. Can you deal with that? Can you handle that? And then it was like, um, nah. That's such a I good. Can't. It's such a good point that you just said. I have to comment on it because it's mm -hmm. so relevant. So my recommendation to my clients is to always put it up front in the profile mm -hmm. that you have a disability. So either in the picture or in the narrative that you have a disability. But then the key, the question here or the gray ground is. How much do you say? Mm -hmm. Do you say you need 24-hour care? Do you say you need help washing your hair? Do you, that you can't go to the bathroom without someone else's help? Do, do you need to say it all at once? And, and sometimes there's that pressure to say it all at once. And maybe you felt that pressure. Mm -hmm. You know, like, let me put it all out there. But I, I like to switch that focal spotlight onto who you're talking to as a date. This person also has issues, skeletons in their closet, right. things that are private and intimate that he doesn't have to disclose to you. All at one time, right? Yeah, right, so right. I, I, I'm a big, like, if when you're comfortable to talk about those more of those intimate 
details. Do you do you think that um, people with disabilities have problems meeting other, you know, meeting people and dating? Do you think people look at us and think, I don't want to have to change any diapers. I don't want to have to do any of those type of things. Do you think they look at us like that? Yeah, yeah. I do. <laughs> I think a part of the population does still hold tight to those stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And then another type has just, another subset of the population has just never been exposed to disability. And I blame that on the media as well. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't see it on TV, right? so they're not sure what to do or how to take someone in a wheelchair on a mm -hmm. date. And also, uh, society can be very superficial. It's often about, oh, look who I've got on my arm. Look at this right, hot, right, right. hot person that I picked up. Mm -hmm. So how can we be that quote-unquote hot person when we're up against these this mound of stereotypes that just aren't true. One of the things that I've found is that even amongst ourselves, we don't consider each other datable sometimes. You know, I, I, I do know some couples who are both disabled and they date, but I've been dealing with um, laid love and intimacy for the disabled for two years now. And I've had so many people come to me and talk to me about, now you guys do it professionally, I do it like kitchen table, you know, so it's like we, we get to talk and edu talk to each other and educate each other just by exchanging our experiences. Mm -hmm. And I've had, I've had people come up to me and tell me, you know, I don't understand. I haven't dated in 15 years. It's, I'm not bad looking. I keep myself together and they still have, have not dated. And even in talking with each other, you know, would you ever date somebody in a wheelchair? And talking to somebody in a wheelchair, hell no. <laughs> it's like, are you serious? Why not? What am I going to do with a woman in a wheelchair? You know, and so I think also the way we look at each other, you know, it, it's like we haven't gotten over ourselves yet. How can we expect other people to get over our, you, do you understand what I'm saying? We yeah. haven't accepted ourselves. As... Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's a concept of internalized homophobia. I don't know if you ever heard of it. No, I haven't. Danielle. Um... So, people may be, you know, not straight. They may be gay or lesbian, um, but still harbor, you know, a hatred towards other people um, and themselves because they grew up I want to say in an able body, but they grew up in a really heteronormative world and they grew up with all the, you know, learning all the stigma. And so as people, you know, come of age and they begin to identify um, their feelings as someone towards having feelings towards someone towards the same sex, it doesn't always change the attitudes that they learn. So there could be a, a level of, of, you know, homophobia, even within somebody who is gay or lesbian. And I think the same thing happens to people with disabilities. So like when I first broke my neck, you know, my mother is pushing me in the mall and saying, hey, there's someone in, in, a, in a wheelchair, go say hi. And I'm like, no way, you know, I wouldn't go say hi to them before. And it wasn't because they were in a wheelchair, but I was just don't push me over there because I'm in a chair and you think I have right. something in common with them. You don't. So there's this, you know, need to hold on uh, to your identity um, and not to, you know, redefine me like this. Um, and so if I wouldn't have done it yesterday when I was walking, don't push me over there today. And so we, we, we learn these things just like everyone else. And, and Danielle's experience, you know, is, is different. You know, people who were born with their disabilities, you know, learn this from day one. Um, Linda Mona did work, Dr. Linda, Linda Mona, on sexual esteem, and it's similar to dating esteem, and we're talking about relating to people how they feel lovable and capable as a partner, uh, and it's, you know, sexual esteem scales don't, don't measure that. But she saw that actually people born with their disabilities had a higher level of sexual esteem um, because people who acquired their disabilities were constantly comparing to before. You know, it's it's, it's sort of like it's, it's you feel kind of like it's broken now, 
Yeah. Right. You know, it and doesn't so, work the way it used to work, so... Well, I think that we... But, yeah, there's also a difference, too, between, like, having feeling. Because a lot of my patients with congenital disabilities are really horny and masturbate and want to... Ma- you know, they have... it. There's, like, some intact... Like, their se- yeah. sexual function, yeah, is working. So there's also that difference and difficulty with us too but I I just wanted to to piggyback off what you were saying and to address the question about dating someone else in a wheelchair and some people don't I feel that ableism is still so powerful in 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 our culture and that's when and that's the concept of when you're growing up especially with a disability congenital uh, maybe specifically it's like you know you're in this able-bodied world and often parents and the family push you and maybe it's even covert pushing but to just be as quote normal as possible you know so you yes you have a disability but you know work around it minimize it so often i see through the developmental spectrum people that have that know absolutely no one with a disability for a long yeah. time and, and don't even want to, let alone date them, because th- I spent so much time being normal, having normal friends, having normal boyfriend, doing normal things. Why would I want to now associate with the exact image that I'm trying to repress? Right, right, right. And that's sad. And that's that's something that is changing and I hope will change more. Definitely. Thank you for that, because I, I mean, when I was talking about internalized homophobia, it's, it's the same for somebody who's grown up gay or lesbian or, or trans. So yeah, between ableism, uh, you know, it's more directly comparable to, to our experience, uh, both, both yours and mine. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to your point about people um, having sensation and such with different types of disabilities, um, the, the research shows, too, that while well, we're just in, in the population born with their disabilities, uh, although they feel very sexual, their you know their first kiss is later, and their first intercourse intercourse is later. So yeah, you have the experience of having you know full sensations. And I also I often talk when I'm teaching and when I'm working with people, I talk about uh, systems that affect sexual response and expression. And I, and I have to explain, especially to medical professionals, that sometimes a disability doesn't affect sexual function or response at all. People could you know, have sensation, they could have sexual responses, they could have babies, right? But it's the sexual expression, it's the dating, it's the ability to speak. A lot of people I work with have problems with, with speaking, and so they have to use a communication board or an assistant. Uh, and it's sometimes accessibility, you know, so I work with a lot of people with cerebral palsy and, and muscular dystrophy, but, you know, if they have a, a power chair, you know, they, they, they don't get out. They can't get out. You know, it's a whole logistical procedure to try to go out on a date. So these, these like, barriers, which are barriers to, you know, work, too, uh, are larger barriers to, to dating and establishing relationships. And one barrier, one barrier, I like how you mentioned barriers. One barrier also is fear of rejection, which, ah. I, which again, it, it, it also blends with how, dating and relationships is it's difficult for anyone but but rejection is especially hard because especially if you've had no experience so a lot of my clients are afraid just to to go up to a woman that that they're going to be shot down but I, I like to say when they're rejected for the first time I say congratulations you're now and yeah. you've now entered the dating world you're welcome right, right, right. because you're going to be shot uh, down a lot right. because everyone's shot down right and I, I like I that don't. because it sorry it just I like it because it normalizes yeah. the whole dating concept for someone with I, a disability I, I tell everyone up front, you have to inoculate yourself against rejection, that you have to, you know, take a shot because it happens to everybody mm-hmm. and for all different reasons. So when you were talking about or asking the question, when should you reveal? And I, I take the same approach as Danielle. It's like, okay, I'm definitely going to say, you know, I have a disability up front, but I'm not going to do a complete data dump. But I also say, check your emotions, you know, it's check in, not don't, don't, don't hold back your emotions, check in with your emotions. You don't want to fall head over 
heels in love with somebody only to reveal later and get rejected. Right. So, you know, I would, you know, if if you're keeping it casual and, you know, it's a, you reveal as needed, but if you feel like this relationship is getting, you know, closer, then start to reveal so you're not so invested emotionally and then get cut off. Because that's, I think once you, the, the rejection hurts more, the more invested you are and the more strong feelings you have. So I like to get that stuff out of the way up, up front and, you know, and, and as you get along. I want to ask as you, a, as you, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry to cut you, but I want to ask a question. Uh, make sure I, I get to it about assisting someone during sex. How yes. awkward does that get for the person who's assisting? Well, it all depends on the the assistant. So, uh, I wrote an article for New Mobility many years ago called "Facilitated Sex: The Next Frontier" with a question mark. So you asked about the assistant, but also sometimes someone being assisted. So this was both people I knew. The guy had uh, muscular dystrophy and was uh, in a in a in a power chair uh, with limited movement. And the woman was quadriplegic. She and she was also pretty complete. Uh, and they wanted to be together. And uh, we, I met them in it was in Disney World. Uh, and uh, her attendant was there. And we were on a boat, and I asked her attendant, how comfortable would you feel uh, helping somebody with, you know, sexual activity? And she was, I think, from Dominican Republic or something. She said, oh, and it's natural, no problem. So I let the, the woman know that your attendant would be willing to help if you guys want to be together. And, um, and so I worked with the three of them, and she actually, you know, helped them position themselves and actually had to help him position himself for intercourse. So the attendant was comfortable, and he was comfortable, but she, you know, there was another woman in the room, and the woman, there was, there was this interracial couple, and the woman was the same race as the other guy, and the woman was attractive, right? Mm-hmm. So she was wondering, you know, she, she felt, okay, there's a third person in the oh. room, and, you know, is he excited because of her, not me? No. And so there was, you know, there were things going on with her having a third person in the room. So, and, and each situation is unique. If it's your regular caretaker and you have a comfortable relationship, and sometimes I work with two people with disabilities and their caretakers are there, they'll set them up and go out of the room, mm-hmm. right? And, and it's, you know, for them, it's, it's part of the work. Sometimes people have to go outside of that regular care and find somebody who will help them. You know, all this is like under... You know, you don't see ads in the paper for this. You know, all this happens. Well, I, I was about now. to ask, how 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 does that fit into the job description? It's, you know, is that something like from an agency, a regular aid from a for from regular agency? Do you... It's still a very gray, shady area, because I I mean, a lot of people, me included, look at sexuality as another ADL activities of daily living so you need to help in the shower or need help eating and also sexuality that's important too but but agencies and hiring a home attendant it's it's difficult to add that into the picture for for a lot of reasons just because I mean one being that that's a very one being that it's hard to find a good home attendant in the first place right right (laughs) period full stop but then to ask them to take it to this next level. But in in re, in year in the years since I've been to New York, I whenever I enter a new interview a new home attendant, I make it clear that I'm single, I'm dating, and that's going to be a part of it, mm-hmm. the dating. But when it comes to actually having someone facilitate, it's hard. I have a client who is spastic with cere- cerebral palsy, mm-hmm. and she can't really do anything on her own and and wants to masturbate so it's like who to ask to help okay. with that and and say even if the home attendant says yes it's hard to do that when you know someone's watching or you know someone knows what you're doing or you know someone's waiting on the other side of the door for you to finish right. you know it's not it's, it's yeah, hard it takes a lot of it takes a lot of sexual esteem a lot of um just Trial and error time mm-hmm. to get used to. Somebody who's very comfortable with their self and with sexuality. It's mm-hmm. like these two things. Like you say, because it doesn't matter if they're on the other side of the door. You know they're waiting. 
mm-hmm. you know, and so if you're not completely comfortable or comfortable with that person, you know, it might be, depending, you might be good with one person. I, when I help people, it's usually they're hiring people outside of agencies because when you're working with institutions and you're working with, you know, their legal guidelines, you know, if I, if I was hiring someone to, to help me, I needed help, you know, with, with masturbation, with setting up or something, I would certainly include that in my ADLs, but when it comes to, you know, helping in, in, in other times, you know, I, I think sometimes it's and some, an independent person who's, who's, you know, more flexible. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good point. Each person's level of functionality is important. So maybe someone who's at my level of function or Mitch's, we can have the home attendant help us, but not really know she's helping us. You know, for example, maybe set up in bed. I mean, you don't have to tell them, tell everything, you know, set up certain way to, and then have your privacy to do what you want to do sexually. But then clients who can't do that at all, or who have no motor movement, even fine motor movement. So it's really a case-by-case basis. And in my sessions, we brainstorm that a lot. Okay. What is is the most common thing uh, that clients ask about? In in terms of dating and sexuality? Yes. The topics are, how do I meet someone? That, That might be number one. Yeah. How do I break? How do I get past those stereotypes and meet someone good? So going back to your point before latching on to someone maybe who's not not all the you know he's not that great, right. but he's it's there. Just, yeah. <laughs> so how to get someone who's great and who meets your checklist of of what you're looking for in a mate? So where to go? What do I say in my profile? How do I navigate the first date? Things like that. Or how do I masturbate? How do I masturbate when I can't have sex toys in the house? My mom will find them. Where do I go? Um, and then sex in general and also safety issues around sex. Like I want, I really want to start hooking up. I'm meeting people on Tinder. Mm-hmm. But what if it's a stranger? How do I make sure I'm safe? So we'll brainstorm, you know, having the home attendant sit in the other room or next door. And even... We also, a topic is gynecological visits because some people don't, you know, it's have bad experiences with gynecologists if they're females in wheelchairs. Mm-hmm. Gynecologists who are like, oh, I, you know, I never saw. They don't want to touch a liability. They yeah. Wanna, yeah. Or they don't ask you anything about your sex life, assuming that. you don't have one. Right. You, you, and you if there is, one. yes. And if there is a problem down there, it's like, well, it's a small problem. The rest of that sentence, and you're not having sex anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, so think of how damaging that is. Right, right, right. right. So those those are just a fraction. Yeah, and I, I'll add to that, you know, with two other areas that I work with people. Um, one is getting out of the friend zone, as I call it. So people who are successful in making friends and even going on dates, but when it comes to making that date into a sexual situation, you know, after the first, second date, that's when it all falls apart. So you know, I work on, on, on folks, you know, work with folks with that. I go over specifically what happened, and we do role-playing about how it could happen differently. Uh, and a lot of it is about what we were talking about before. You know, in the back of their heads, they're saying, it, all this is because I'm using a wheelchair. You know, everything else in my life is good. I've got a good degree. I've got a good job. Uh, you know, I've got a good personality. But it's, it's the wheelchair. And... You know, I'll say to, I said to one guy, I'm like, okay, if, and it happened like you said, well, with the, with the data dump, telling somebody everything, you know, he was on the bed with somebody and he was putting his hand in her shirt and he, she said, remind me why you're in a wheelchair again. And he just let out, I was born with this. This is what I need. Blah, blah, blah. She got up, she cried, she walked out, <gasps> you know, and, uh, she came back and she said, I'm sorry. Do you want to see me naked? He said, no, cause at this point he's already just, you know, just decimated and and I, I said I said to him if I were in a bed with somebody and my hand were in her shirt and she said why are you in a remind me why you're in a wheelchair I would say because I can't walk silly and I and my my tongue would be in her mouth before the next word and I wouldn't break my stride you know uh, because I'm 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 not constantly concerned that they're not going to wipe me because I'm in my wheelchair you know and then if if I didn't do that and she came back and she said do you want to see me naked I would say 
of course, uh, maybe we could pick up where we left off. So, you know, when you have a certain amount of, you know, confidence in, in your abilities and your dateability and your, your, your ability to be, you know, sexual, then, then you could do that. But if it's your first time and you haven't made that and it's happened to you three times, mm-hmm. you begin to say everything's about my chair. So once again, I have to give all examples of other people I know in their situation that have, you know, successfully gotten out of the friend zone. And then I get approached by a lot of men in the, well, it used to be more around 50, who's never had any sexual activity. Uh, they got injured early, teenagers or 20s, and live with their folks, as you talked about privacy issues, uh, and, and never did that. And at this point in their lives, they want, they're reaching out to find a, like a surrogate partner. So sometimes, you know, I interview them, I let them know what to expect, what not to expect, and most of the time, the surrogate partner isn't what's what's needed. They need some dating skills and some confidence and coaching. Uh, sometimes it, a surrogate partner is appropriate, but I'm getting younger and younger people. I had a you know guy that was still like 22, and I'm like, once again, what Daniel said, you know, he had two professional parents, you know, like a doctor and, and and something else, and and they the mother especially totally wanted to discount the disability. You know, why can't you find somebody normally? And he totally wanted to make it about his disability. And I said, you know, your mother's kind of right in one way. You haven't done anything to, to meet anybody and do this. And, and I said, you, you went to school the first time you stayed at home. School is a good time, good place to, to break out. You know, you're, you're doing X, Y, and Z. Why don't you go back for your master's and live at school, you know, and get, get an attendant. You'll have your privacy and, and you could reach out and start, you know, I gave him some things to go both groups with people with disabilities and, and where to go to meet people in areas that he was interested in that would be a, a general population. And so when he did, he did find somebody without a surrogate and he had a, a great time. And it was somebody who was kind of a, a, a woman who was kind of a devotee, someone who was interested in, in disability and that didn't bother him. You know, it gets into a whole different area of, of dating, but he came back asking like, is there a place where he could find more of these people? <laughs> well, if you were, if you were a woman, I, I, you know, I, I, I could put you on a website, you know, and, and they'll be all over you, but I don't know if, if there's anything for, you know, women who like men. Okay. In May, there's a uh, seminar coming up called From Injury to Intimacy. Uh, could you tell me something about this uh, seminar, what it'll, what it'll cover? Sure. I mean, this is put on uh, in partnership with Mount Sinai and I believe United Spinal and, and your and your organization, right? Um, so on the first day, um, after I give a welcome, everyone will help, hear a keynote from Danielle, and then we're going to talk about sexuality as the forgotten ADL, uh, the activity of daily living. We're going to talk about with Gary Carp is coming into account, another great uh, you know educator in a chair about challenging attitudes. We'll talk about confidence building, humor. Um, we'll be delving into sexual esteem uh, and, and dating and finding a mate, so with both with Gary and with Danielle. And then on the second day, we're going to get ready, set, and go. So um, people were saying they wanted more nuts and bolts, you know. So this is all around planning sexual activity from start to finish. Um, and so we're going to be talking about getting out of the friend zone and rediscovering intimacy, what you and I were talking about before after injury, you know, how do we, how we relearn our bodies and, and what makes for great sex. And then we're getting into the bowel and bladder incontinence and positioning and undressing and cleaning up after sex and spasticity and flexibility and positioning. And then, you know, accessing orgasm and sensations, toys and devices and uh, ask the experts. So it's a full two days, you know, moving toward, you know, more of the concrete uh, nuts and bolts that people are looking for. Yeah, and I, I think it's important that the panel is going to include people with spinal cord injury and myself, someone with a congenital disability. Right. So it's it's like all are welcome. Okay. And, cool. and come and learn because it's going to be deliciously juicy. Mm-hmm. Their conferences uh, are not dry, not – they don't tiptoe. You know, we're going to get in there and – tell you and answer questions and I know their style and it's great and I'm looking forward to it. I think you'll learn. I understand that there was also a professional one. What's the difference between the professional 
uh, seminar and uh, the one uh, geared towards consumers? Well, the professional one on Saturday was for people who were either um, physicians working in the area or occupational therapists or physical therapists. So the audience... To teach them how to deal with yeah, answer the questions for... To teach them how to broach the topic. Actually, you know, from that's bare bones, step one. And that's difficult for a lot of professionals to even talk about that topic with their clients with disabilities. So I, I, even, I give a lecture at NYU Rusk to psychology interns about the same thing because people tend to want to avoid it. And what kind of message does that give you? Okay. Dr. Tupper and yeah. Dr. Shapook, I want to say thank you very much uh, for enlightening us, for joining us. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Drs. Mitch Tepper and Danielle Shapook, featured speakers at From Injury to Intimacy, Embracing Sexuality After Spinal Cord Injury. If you're interested in attending the two-day conference, which will take place at Mount Sinai's Hess Center at 1470 Madison Avenue on May 12th and 13th, please visit www.sexualitysci.org. ICS members, use the promo code ICS2017. You have been listening to Independence Radio, a broadcast of Independence Care System, a community-based nonprofit agency serving the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens, and dedicated to supporting older adults and adults with physical disabilities and chronic conditions to live at home and participate fully in community life. To learn more, visit www.icsny.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephanie Wallace, founder of The Laid Network. You can learn more about what we do at facebook.com slash love and intimacy for the disabled. Bye-bye.